Okay, if you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles. I'll be reading Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30. Acts 11, 19 through 30. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came, he saw the grace of God, and he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now, in these days... These prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible, historical, and instructive word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your ways. In your ways of giving us the book, the Bible, the 66 writings, and using Dr. Luke to give us the history of the early church. And so with this transition of this early history of the church, help me represent it. Help me unfold it. Help me as a pastor, as a teacher by your Holy Spirit, and help us hear. Help us hear not just with our, our minds, but, but to hear with our hearts and to see with the eyes of the Holy Spirit and the glory that is here and helpful to us in our walk. In Jesus' name, amen. How can the Scripture say in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one is good. Not even one. And then, at the same time, the Scriptures say in our passage, in verse 24, about Barnabas, he was a good man. The answer is simple, really. Romans 3 is referring to all of us human beings who are born into sin, which is all of us. He's referring to our own goodness and own righteousness up against the holy God and His perfections, His sinless perfection. There is none who is good. And so as we did sing this morning, our only hope is that God looks on His perfect Son in humanity, Jesus, and pardons us. In that sense, none of us 
are good. But our passage isn't referring to that kind of goodness that way. It's referring to what we all know to be very natural the way we speak in the context of knowing we do not live in a utopian world. We live in a messed up world. We live, the New Testament says, during this present evil age. And so in that context, it's very appropriate to say, look at that. That guy, that's a bad man with a bad character. She, she's a, she's a good soul. Comparatively speaking, he's good. We don't mean perfect. We don't mean with, without flaws or sin. We mean, he's a good man. Uh, the other guy over there, not so much. That's what we see in our passage. But, Luke points us in this passage to something deeper than just the goodness of Barnabas. Look at verse 24, chapter 11 of Acts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. This is a goodness that grows and develops by the Holy Spirit producing faith. In Barnabas, faith in what? In the Gospel, faith in the Scripture, faith in God's Word. We who are believers, none of us want to be praised. Uh, unless we're sinning. None of us want to be praised as good in the sense that God is. At all. When we sing stuff like, oh, you are merciful, you are glorious, oh, God, you are good, none of us want to see ourselves as good like that. But who does not want to be regarded as Luke regarded Barnabas? He's a good man, he's a good woman. Who does not want their spouse to think, he's a good man. She's a good woman. Who does not want to be regarded as a good person by their parents, by their children, or by their friends, or by their neighbors? I think that's a rhetorical question. And so as we continue here through Luke's storyline of the early church, we're going to get a few glimpses here in this passage of the manifestations of the goodness of Barnabas. And he's a model. He's a model for us who are believers to follow after. But as we do, don't ever think in any way this means that Barnabas is without sin in need of repentance throughout his life, or that he is flawless, or that he's without heartaches or troubles in any way. Actually, before we go there, just think about it. In our New Testament, we have 13 epistles from the Apostle Paul. We have zero epistles from the Apostle Barnabas. And most of us who know our Bible, we know that later on, Paul and Barnabas were good friends and they worked together as brothers in the Lord, but they came to a place over a disagreement on how to deal with a particular other Christian in whether he's useful in ministry. So much so, they could not resolve their differences and they had to split apart. Now, here's the thing. Luke, now as he writes, is looking back in time after after Luke, for years, was an intimate, close friend of Paul's in his missionary journeys, traveling the world with him. And he looks back, and as he writes this part, he says, Barnabas was a good man. So, if you're there, chapter 11... 
We have just come out of the section of Peter preaching to the Gentiles in Cornelius' house and then the council in Jerusalem over what in the world were you doing? And now we pick up again in verse 19 of Acts 11. And at this point, Luke reaches back over all of that to chapter 8 where, if you remember, with the martyrdom of Stephen, the great persecution of the church started, which Saul of Tarsus led. And he says this now in our passage. Now those who were scattered became, uh, because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, that's up north of Israel in Galilee in that section, and Cyprus, that's the big island there in the Mediterranean Sea, about 100 miles off the coast. You can see it in your Bible maps. It's actually where Barnabas was from originally. And Antioch, way up north in the region of Syria. And then he says this. They were speaking the word, preaching Jesus, to no one except Jews. So, see, this was happening before hearing about the vision Peter got and preaching to the non-Jews, the Gentiles, uh, over there in Cornelius' house. So, obviously... They're Jews who believe in Jesus. They're preaching to Jews. Remember, for a long time, they didn't even get that non-Jews could be saved by Jesus. And so this message is spreading, as we see, much further than Judea and Samaria, all the way up 300 miles north of Jerusalem to the third largest city in the Roman Empire, Antioch. And then at some point, Luke says, this began to happen. Verse 20 and 21. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus, Barnabas' hometown, and Cyrene, or home island, and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenist. Okay, it's a big word for the Greek thing. Now his point here is this spoke to non-Jews, to Gentiles also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And a great number who believed turned, turned to Jesus, turned to the Lord. And so, he lets us know that some of these Jewish Christians, at some time now, they just, I don't know how, he didn't tell how, like he did with Peter, we know how that happened. We don't know how other than they just, something happened where, I don't know, what are you guys talking about? Jesus of Nazareth. And maybe they started a conversation with non-Jews. They started sharing with non-Jews about their Savior. And before their eyes, the hand of the Lord acted, causing these pagan idol worshipers to ask maybe something like, that sounds right. Can, can we be saved? I think I really believe in what you're telling me about this Jesus character dying on a cross and rising from the dead. And so these Christian Jews look at each other Something's changing in him. Can they? I guess. Hand of the Lord fell. Things happened. And so, what we have then, Antioch, whether this is going on for a month, four months, six months, we don't know. But Jews and Gentiles were mingling. And if you know, in many contexts, that's a no-no for the Jew. They're mingling together around Jesus of Nazareth up in the big city of Antioch. They're reading Bible 
together. They're fellowshipping. A few of these Christian Jews are probably teaching everything they know and that they've heard about Jesus and Jesus' sayings and the Sermon on the Mount and how He said, I came to give my life a ransom. And they, and they got the Bible. They have the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And they turn to Isaiah 53. And, and, and so and they're teaching. And this is happening in mixed company in a Jew's home where Gentiles will come in. Or Gentile home where Jews will come in. Those are both no-nos for Jews. So they're, they're mingling and all in the context of Jesus and the written Word of God, the Holy Scripture. After some time, Word filters down to the home base church of early Christianity, Jerusalem. What? I didn't know what to make of it. We have to Check this out. Verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So remember, at this point in the early church, we're probably 12, 14 years, somewhere there, in since Christ's crucifixion and resurrection, this is a very new idea that, that even Gentiles could be saved by Jesus. And it's not easy to make that transition as a, as a Jew, even as a Jewish Christian particularly. Okay, so many Jewish Christians are still struggling to grasp that in their head. That's a huge paradigm shift. Okay. But we saw a council meeting. We saw arguments over it that Luke tells us about. But that, okay then, God is saving Gentiles. But nobody as of yet has worked out what do we do if outside of the Jerusalem city, I mean the Jewish city of Jerusalem, where we're pretty much all Jews, and in Judea, pretty much all Jews, not a problem. I mean, you got some Roman soldiers around, that's Cornelius and his family, and they get saved. What do you do if in a very large city, with, with a huge Jewish population and a much larger population of non-Jews of different ethnicities in that city, if they come to Jesus and thus they see themselves as Jesus' followers. What happens? How do they deal with that? It, it was one thing for them to say, okay, Gentiles can come to faith in Jesus and be saved from their sins and belong to Him, and they can do that without having to become Jewish. Meaning, without having to be circumcised and practice kosher diet and all the Jewish uh, legal customs and laws. Okay, so many of them have already bought that. Others are still struggling with it. But that's one thing. It's another thing to ask, well, what about the Jews? What about the Jewish Christians? And if they find themselves in a context like Antioch, and there's non-Jews who also believe in Jesus, do they ever worship together? If they do, how? Do they ever eat together? Hmm, that's a problem. What about Jews who are coming to faith in Jesus, in the diaspora, surrounded by Gentiles, coming to faith in Jesus. What do you do? And so the word leaks down to Jerusalem, and the apostles and the elders they knew. It's a tough one. We better, we better send one of our wisest one of our most mature, Holy Spirit-filled, trustworthy men to investigate what's happening. So who do we send? And that was easy for them. Because over the years, 
Barnabas has proved himself time and again as wise and as a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. They could have sent one of the twelve apostles. They didn't. One of the other elders or deacons. They didn't. Barnabas had a reputation for dealing with outsiders for one. He was really good at it. He had a reputation and a personality that was uplifting, encouraging to others. In fact, if you remember, Lucas already let us know that Barnabas was not his original name. It's a nickname given to him. When he told us in chapter 4, Joseph, that's his name, who was called by the apostles Barnabas. Why? He says this, because that name means this, which means son of encouragement. He just had this personality and this gift of encouragement. He says he was a Levite and a native of Cyprus. And then Luke had already let us know earlier also that when everyone else was frightened of Saul of Tarsus, after his conversion, three years later, he shows back up in Jerusalem, and they're not trusting him. It was Barnabas who sought him out, befriended Saul, heard the stories from the others that were with him, what happened in Damascus, and how he preached and taught the Word of God. And then it was Barnabas who took him to the apostles and defended Saul as a true believer. Luke wants us to see Barnabas' goodness as this encourager, this advocate, even for outsiders where others are having a hard time accepting. Go to Antioch. I'm going to deal with it. That, that, that situation up there. Everyone's afraid of Saul, but Barnabas. And what stands out to Luke about Barnabas, which is directly connected to his goodness, was that he was full of the Holy Spirit and thus full of faith in God and God's Word. And it really shows up in verses 23 and 24. When he came, that is, when Barnabas came to Antioch and he saw the grace of God. Come back to that. When he saw the grace of God when he went there, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful. He saw that they were faithful to Jesus. These Gentiles and Jews, they're faithful to Jesus. He said, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. And then Luke tells us why. Why did Barnabas react that way when he went up? His answer is this, because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit into faith. The leadership in the church of Jerusalem could have sent the wrong guy. I have to imagine, knowing the context of the early church in Jerusalem, that different sects within the church, particularly the Pharisaic sect, the circumcision party sect, they wanted one of their guys to go. And if they would have drawn straws and one of those Jewish Christians from the circumcision party went up there, it wouldn't have read like that. They would have seen the same thing that Barnabas saw. But they wouldn't have seen the grace of God. They wouldn't have been glad like Barnabas was when he saw it. They would have been angry. But they sent the right man. He was a spiritual man. He was a man who took walking in the sensitivity to God, to God's Holy Spirit, very seriously. 
And that's why when he got there, as a Jew, a Jewish Christian, watching Jews and Gentiles eat food together, he saw the grace of God. And he was happy about it. When he gets there, these are sinners like us all. These are undone people with all kinds of imperfections being saved by God's grace. Remember, it's a fairly new church plan. And this is a sticky situation, Jews and Gentiles, at this point. And yet with all of its imperfections, Barnabas focused on the evidences of God's grace at work in those who turned to Jesus. Because faith, he's full of faith. He's full of spirit. The spirit in one and the faith in the scripture and in the gospel sees God's grace in others and rejoices over it. It loves to see God's grace, not just in itself or in oneself, which, which, which it does, but in other persons' lives. So, how do you see grace? I mean, grace is it's an immaterial idea. It's not something physical. It's in God, towards persons. How do you see it? I mean, so, wouldn't you agree that clearly, when Luke writes that, he, he must mean he saw the effects of God's grace. And at bare minimum, the effects that he saw must have been, look at these, these Gentiles, idol worshipers, turning away from worshiping idols. Turning away from sexual immorality. If you, I read some this week on the city of Antioch. I mean, you heard of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Roman Empire? Antioch had that kind of reputation, particularly with prostitution connected to religion, pagan religion and temple prostitution. He saw change. He saw the effects of God's grace. Their love, their care for one another, even a Gentile for a Jew, and a Jew for a Gentile. And you add to that, he just saw they're hungry. They just, they just want to keep coming and learning and reading Scripture and hearing tell me more. And Psalms, what, you guys, they don't know much about what all the Jews are doing, but now they got their Bible in their translation. And these are like, that's songs, right? Yeah, we got a few more hymns that we've even created. We want to teach you. And they're just, they're hungry. He sees the effects of the grace of God upon them. Their hunger for worship and fellowship and Bible and teaching and worship. The grace of God was moving in Antioch. Many people were coming to faith in Christ. Luke makes this part clear a few times. And because Barnabas was a good man who was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, that led him to do what he did next. And a great many people were added to the Lord and so, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. Tarsus is a hundred miles away. He doesn't have a car. This was important to him. Somewhere in the Tarsus area, of Cilicia area, Paul's been ministering and reaching out to Gentiles, he's going to find that out. But he knows he had the special message to the Gentiles that Jesus gave him. And so, 
Why would Barnabas do that? Because he's full of the Holy Spirit. Say it another way. Why would Barnabas do that? Because his heart was to seek the glory of God through the building up of the church. And so at some point, he realized in Antioch, this is way too much to handle. It keeps growing. And so he knows God has differing people with differing strengths or weaknesses and gifts. And he remembers way back when he met Paul and hung out with Paul a little bit. He remembered the testimony about how he taught when the others showed this guy's amazing up in Damascus. He remembered even watching Paul in the Greek-speaking synagogues in Jerusalem preaching and arguing with the Scripture, with the scripture about Jesus as the Christ. He remembers that and says, this guy is full of knowledge and passion for Jesus and a gifted teacher and a gifted preacher. He would be of such great help here in what's happening in the city of Antioch to help these young believers Grow, grow in their love, grow in their knowledge, understand the historical, biblical context of the Christ event. He is important. I'm going to go get him. Because Barnabas was not just committed to evangelism. But he was committed to the body of Christ, to the discipleship and the growing of God's people in the family of God. And so Luke says he took off and searched for and finally found Paul. Remember the church in Antioch was not founded by apostles. We don't know all the circumstances. He didn't say it. He just they just started Christians ended up spilling over from Jews to they start talking to Gentiles and right before their eyes God moved. Things happened. Jerusalem sends one of theirs up. Got to check this out. Make sure everything's going all right here. And they send Barnabas. And he arrives. And he realizes this is a move of God. This thing keeps growing. This is big. We need more qualified teachers and preachers and in-depth Bible expositors. And who better to start with than that former persecutor of the church, that well-trained Bible scholar, Saul of Tarsus. And then next, notice the primary context then. When they get back to Antioch for their ongoing teaching ministry. Teaching about, as Luke said earlier, of what Barnabas said. Teaching about their remaining faithful in the Lord. Walking faithfully with the Lord. Being steadfast in purpose. Loving the Lord. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Understanding the atonement, etc. The context was the local church. Verse 26. And when Barnabas had found Saul, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. They met with the church and they taught. The gathered people, that's essentially what church means. Ecclesia, the assembling together. That's, what, that's what, why together we who believe, who gather together, are called the church, the gathering. It is the gathered people of God as is the primary context for Christian maturity, Christian growth, Christian community, and Christian learning. Then, the last thing Luke tells us at the end of verse 26 is this. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. This is about anywhere between 12 
in 15 years after the cross of Christ and the resurrection. It was up here in Antioch where the term Christians came about. So Luke is satisfying the curiosity of his readers and us. Where'd this come about? There it is. But it most likely didn't start as, let's call ourselves Christians. It was probably derogatory. A term that other outsiders used, term of derision. Now, who are those people? Oh, those are people always talking about Christos. That's the Greek word for Christ. They're, in other words, they're Christ people. They're Christos people. No, here's the word in Greek. They're they're, they're Christianoi. Christianoi. That's what it is. That's where they're first called Christianoi. The oi is just an ending. It has to do with person and number. It could be Christianoi, Christianos, Christiano, etc. So just take off the ending. Christian. And it's transliterated straight over into English. Christian. So in other words, they start to think probably... Yeah, okay. We'll take that. I'm all about Christ. I love Jesus, the Christ, my Savior, and it stuck. Fine, I'm a Christian. Uh, much like the Jesus movement of the 1960s, all kinds of hippies and young people and dropping acid and, okay, you know, the whole scene. And the Jesus movement happens. And then out of that, where, where Christians go preach to them, many of them come to the Lord, and we call it the Jesus movement in a derogatory term. A bunch of Jesus freaks. And yeah, I'll take that. I used to run around naked, eating mushrooms and smoking pot and thinking everything was cool. And Jesus saved my life. Uh, that's a cool Jesus freak. I'm one of those. It's kind of how it came about. I think. But now, I think... And what Luke is doing, other than just historical curiosity, where did this word Christian come from, was this. He is showing us a transition. And Antioch was key. It is, and what's happening in his writing of the book of Acts in the early church now, is this transition from the all-Jewish church, the main home base of Christianity there in Jerusalem to this outpost church 300 miles up north in the city of Antioch. The outpost to the Gentile world. In other words, followers of Christ up to this point now, and now the transition, more and more were no longer to be seen as just a radical Jewish sect. Instead, the church was identified as the people of Jesus Christ, together Jews and non-Jews, Christians. The foundation and the founding of the church in Antioch was one of the most significant historical events ever. It led to the distinctiveness of the Christian church apart from the Jewish synagogue. It was the beginning of the blending together into one body, really interacting with each other of both Jews and Gentiles. And then Antioch, of course, we will see, became the launching pad to these missionary outreaches further and further away from Jerusalem, up in the region of Galatia, Asia Minor, Macedonia, Greece, and Europe to the Gentile world. And then finally, Luke shows us that the, the work of the Holy Spirit through the ongoing teaching of the Word of God produces 
in those who believe an overflow of love, of generosity, of compassion for fellow believers. Verses 27, 28. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And Luke says, this took place in the days of Claudius. Claudius was the Roman emperor who reigned from the year A.D. 41 to AD 54. Most scholars put what happened right here between AD 45 and AD 47. And there were like three different famines during Claudius's reign. You read on. And so in response, it didn't say that from Jerusalem they said, please help us. Didn't say anything like that. Didn't say here the apostles said, let's do this. Didn't say that. It said, So the disciples, the community, determined. Everyone, according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, the Jewish homeland. Why? Because that community in Antioch, like that community of Christians anywhere on the wor- in the world is not a club. It's just not another community to join. It's a miracle. These are persons who have been plucked out of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's light, the kingdom of His very eternal Son, their Savior, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the teaching of the Gospel of Jesus. That's not just a club. And that there produces love. Love manifested in many ways. Love here manifested in giving of oneself and of one's resources. And so these Christians together just determined whether you're dirt poor, lower class, middle class, upper class, filthy rich, each according to their ability dug down into their pockets joyfully for the sake of their brothers and their sisters in the Jewish church, in Judea, in Jerusalem. And it's, hard, it's easy for us to miss, but if you're in the first century, you're not going to miss this. Don't miss Luke's point. A whole bunch of Gentiles Non-Jews, loving Jesus, were loving their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jesus. That's what he's saying. That, as we see the goodness of Barnabas, oh, we see the goodness of these disciples through their good works. We see the grace of God manifested in their giving. We see the power of the gospel in operation through their actions, their good works. We are not saved and neither were they by those good works. You cannot be saved by works, by anything we do in action. We are saved by faith, 
I hear the gospel. I believe it. Yes, I receive it. Alone. Alone. Totally alone, apart from any good works. Faith, which itself is a miracle, the Spirit, precedes works. But that same faith that saves and abides and you continue in produces good works. It produces love. It produces generosity. It produces the forgiving of the sins of others. It produces a, a running away from and a fleeing from one's own sinful patterns of life and battling them throughout their life. The Apostle Paul said this the best and very concisely in Ephesians chapter 2. I'll read as slowly as I can when you feel every word of the Holy Spirit through Paul. For by grace you have been saved through Faith. And, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It is not. Your salvation is not a result of works. So that nobody can boast. He's not done though. Then he says, do you see, believer? You've already come to faith. You're in faith. You're saved by faith. You are justified. Your sins are wiped out. And then he says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God Himself prepared beforehand that we should Walk in them. And that's what we see illustrated in the church in Antioch. And that brings us then back again to the goodness of Barnabas, which we see manifested now, his goodness manifested in his trustworthiness. The community there in Antioch trusted him and Saul with all of that money to travel 300 miles to Jerusalem. Verse 30. And so they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And Luke, remember, he's already emphasized this aspect of Barnabas' trustworthiness, particularly with money. Remember early on when the grace of God was shown throughout the whole Christian community there in Jerusalem for, for the no one's going to go hungry here or without a shelter, no way. And so they were, were selling property and, and giving and giving. But he only used one particular person as an example. And that was Barnabas. And he said this in chapter 4. Barnabas sold a piece of land that belonged to him. And he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So again, Barnabas had this reputation of being trustworthy with his own money. And thus trustworthy with other people's money because he lived in a way that showed he did not worship money but worshiped God. So how do we sum up all of this goodness about Barnabas? Luke already did it. Verse 24. He was a good man 
full of the Holy Spirit and faith. His goodness was the fruit of the Holy Spirit. His goodness flowed out of His trusting in God, in God's Scripture, in God's Word, in the Gospel. And so may we here today take Barnabas' exhortation that he gave to them in Antioch to remain faithful to the Lord, to remain steadfast in purpose. And may we endeavor to be like Barnabas, walking in the Spirit instead of gratifying the desires of the flesh so that we may glorify God by bearing the fruit of goodness. So let us pursue a walk with Christ like Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as we just read with Paul, you, not us, you created us in Christ Jesus. You took us who are in Christ when we were in darkness and you plucked us out and you mercifully made us believers. Oh, and as we see this passage today in the goodness of Barnabas, in other words, the fruit of the Holy Spirit flowing in his life, oh, may it flow in our lives by the Spirit and by walking in faith, even using our particular differing giftings that might not totally match Barnabas's. Continue to work, continue to operate, continue to draw us desperately as desperate children to you day by day in our walk so that we too may be empowered by the Spirit and energized by the faith that grows more and more within us in your glorious promises and direction for our lives written down in Holy Scripture to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.